Just sit around with a bunch of people and talk about topics that related to death really take some of the intensity out and it's practice. Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant and educator. I work one-on-one with family caregivers to help them respond to the sometimes confusing and sometimes frustrating behaviors that come with a diagnosis of a dementia. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia. Our goal is to focus on the caregiver, offer some practical insights, and share some emotional support. And hopefully we'll share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter's the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Speaking of good medicine, there you go. Right there. What a combo. (laughs) Yeah. And see the smile and the laugh already? Yeah, there you go. (laughs) You know, when my dad came to live with us, we sat down at his urging and talked about an advanced medical directive for him. About six months prior to his passing, knowing what his wishes were, we were able to do all the arrangements for him so that when it's time came, we didn't have to make any decisions and we could just start the grieving process immediately. Absolutely. And that was that was a big help when the end actually came. And, you know, I think I've mentioned this on, on the podcast before, going to see my doctor and being asked if I had an advanced medical directive. And my question to them was, do you only ask this of old people? And they kind of laughed and said, no, we ask that of everybody because we ne- you never know. You know, there's car accidents, there's illnesses, you know, you don't have to be an old person, but you do need to have these, your wishes known to other people. So this is a very important subject, which brings us to today's guest, who is an end-of-life acupuncturist and hospice volunteer. Her experience with suffering at the end of life led her to involvement with Compassion and Choices, a national organization whose mission is to improve care, expand options, and empower people to chart their end-of-life journey. She facilitates death cafes and encourages early conversation about the end-of-life wishes before a medical crisis occurs. It is her hope that conversations such as these result in a better death experience for everyone. We are pleased to welcome Sharon Crowell. Sharon, thank you so much for being with us and being willing to talk with us and our listeners about this difficult time. We we all have this idea in the back of our head. Yes, we're going to die someday, but it's always way off in the future and we don't want to deal with it now. But what we found between the difference when Mike's mom passed suddenly and nothing was in place to when his dad passed and everything was in place made it so much, I guess, easier is not really, it's never easy, but easier for somebody who's grieving the loss of a loved one to have everything in place. So welcome and thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, Yes, so Compassion and Choices, that definitely is their mission to encourage early conversation. And in fact, We talk about, when we're talking about putting together advanced directives, the five Ds. So you want to get them in place and then review them every decade. Review them if there's been a divorce, very important. Um, If there's been a new diagnosis, uh, 
for the person if there's been a decline in um, the functionality of the person. And finally, it's nice to review your advanced directive after you've experience the death of somebody close, be it a family member or a friend, because that can really inform you of things that worked well, things that might have been better, how you might want to change what you have put in place for yourself. You know, this is really timely. Um, I was talking to someone on my um, caregiver support group yesterday who he was he was with our group from early onset of his wife's dementia to end of life. And one of the things that he was sharing yesterday was the need to do redo the advanced directive, to redo the will upon his wife's death. And, you know, it, uh, well, I thought, well, she has passed. Why did he need to change anything? Because she's not there anymore. But um, he was explaining it's not that simple. Yes. And again, with the, those five Ds, I was present in the last couple of weeks and days of someone who was legally separated and they hadn't redone their paperwork. So her primary caregiver was her estranged husband. Um, and they had not actually, you know, been together in any kind of relationship at all for over a year. So that was an uncomfortable situation for everyone. So, uh, yes. So what are the five Ds? Yes. Um, I wanted to let your uh, listeners know that one of Compassion and Choice's uh, goals is to actually work to make the end-of-life experience easier for people who are living with dementia. And they have two tools that you can download from their website. One is called uh, the Advanced Directive Addendum, the Dementia Provision. And this is a document that, as you mentioned, Bobby, should be discussed early on. Um, it's a matrix. So on the vertical axis are all the dementia markers, starting with, um, I've forgotten my past, but I recognize the people that come and visit me all the way down to I'm unable to feed myself or go to the bathroom by myself. And then horizontally are the care interventions that you might want at each of these stages of the progression of the disease. So I want to live as long as possible all the way to the other end of the access, um, which is no interventions at all let nature take its course. Um, so that's a, a tool to think about for any of us, what we might want um, in that situation. And the second tool that they have on their website, they call it the Dementia De Decoder. And it's a list of questions to ask your physician when you go in for a medical appointment. So there's a list of questions if you're not exhibiting any signs of dementia and there's no dementia in your family. There's a list of questions if you're experiencing the early stages of dementia. There's a list of questions if you're a caregiver. 
trying to put together a care plan for your loved one. And finally, um, there's a list of questions if a diagnostic procedure or some other medical intervention has been suggested by the care team for your loved one. So you can go in and scroll whatever of those options reflects you, and you'll get a whole bunch of questions. And the ones that resonate for you, you can tick off, and then they send you an email with your questions. So you have something that you can take with you when you go to your medical appointment. And I think um, this is really important. Um, In the last month of life, 57% of nursing home residents with a dementia diagnosis had at least one ER visit, and half of those people ended up with an overnight stay. So we know that one of the most important things for people who are experiencing dementia is to have that familiar environment, to have that routine that they understand and can depend on. So to have these interventions um, at the end of life, it's really something that a caregiver um, should feel comfortable with questioning um, the physician or the doctor or the member of the care team that is advocating for this intervention. Now, you said 57% of dementia patients have hospital stays when? 7% of nursing home patients with advanced dementia. And this is from an NIH study in 2015. So let's hope that things have changed. Have had at least one ER visit. And then half of that 57% have ended up with a hospital stay. And again, that goes against the standard of care that, that we know for people, especially people with advanced dementia. One of the things, Bobby, that you said at the conference in October that was really shocking to me, I can't remember the exact number, but when I was following up and doing my own research, Um, that caregivers who are the primary caretaker of someone with dementia, 63% of them over the age of 70 will die before their loved one. Yeah, um, that's even higher than what I quoted because uh, it wasn't quantified by the age of the caregiver, but 40% of caregivers die before the person in their care. Because for a number of reasons, uh, part of it is the stress, part of it is they're not eating right, they're not following up on their own doctor's appointments, um, they're not sleeping, they're not eating properly. Um, I actually do a presentation talking about the collateral damage to caregivers um, that does not get the attention that it needs because people think of caregivers, unfortunately, many times as... um, Having it easy, they get to stay home. Eat bonbons. Um, <laughs> and, um, I mean, even when we started, you know, people would say, what are you going to do all day? And um, because unless you've done it, m- most people don't know anything about taking care of somebody that is so impaired um, that you're, you're on call 24-7, seven days a week for years, and what a toll that takes on you. It's a shocking number. Yes. I mean, whether it's 40% or 
63, it doesn't matter. It's a huge number. And so one of the things, as you were talking about how the caregivers let their own um, health kind of come second, you also want to make sure that the caregivers have their advanced directives in place because what a horrible crisis situation. You know, dad's been taking care of mom and all of a sudden he has a medical event or an unanticipated death. And if the children or the siblings or whoever is sort of next in line as power of attorney for healthcare, then they're trying to figure out two things, right? Who's going to be taking care of mom now? And what would dad have wanted um, for his own final days or for his own funeral memorial? Well, you know, it, it, it reminded me of a situation when I had my very first panic attack it was during the time that I was taking care of Mike's dad. And um, I didn't know what it was. I thought I was having a heart attack. So we called the ambulance. They determined it wasn't a heart attack. It was a panic attack. Well, anyway, the next morning I asked, I said, Roger, did, did you hear the ambulance, or how did you sleep? He said, I didn't sleep a wink all night. And I said, then you didn't hear the ambulance. And he, at first he thought the ambulance was there for him. And I said, no, it was there for me. And um, he said, are you okay? And I said, yes. And I was thinking, oh, he's concerned about me. But his response was, if you go down, I go down. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and that fits right in with what you said as his primary caregiver, what happens when when I don't take care of myself to the point that I'm having panic attacks and migraines and my hair's falling out, what happens to him? And, you know, he was <laughs> kind of crude at the mo in the moment, you know, okay, you're not worried about me, you're worried about yourself, but that's, that's, that's a reality of it. So your recommendation, and a very good one at that, is when the person under your care passes, you need to update your paperwork to reflect uh, what your wishes are. Or you should do that before then. Yeah, before. Yeah. Before, yeah. and then again, as Bobby mentioned earlier, if the um, patient passes, then to go revisit um, and look at everything again. Which was one of the five Ds, right? Every decade, divorce, diagnosis, decline, and death. That's right. The five Ds. Right, the five Ds. So um, I, I have to say... What is a death cafe? Because I kind of picture us sitting around having a cup of coffee with people <laughs> falling over. No, it's not that. So um, a death, although we do serve tea and cake because the movement, if you will, started in England. Um, so we always have tea and cake of some sort. But a death cafe is an event where people who usually are strangers, people who don't know each other, just kind of get together for an hour or an hour and a half and talk about whatever is on their minds in terms of death and dying and impermanence. And it truly is a group-led discussion. Um, I facilitate, but my job as a facilitator is pretty much just to make sure that everybody gets a chance to speak. Um, if they want to. And because the discussions are group led, each conversation is completely unique. I have probably facilitated 30 or 35 death cafes and none of them 
um, have been the same. I mean, certain themes may reappear, but uh, one of the first death cafes I hosted was so interesting. A gentleman in his mid-70s shared with the group that he couldn't get his children to talk to him about his death. Oh, dad, that's so depressing. Why do we want to ruin this nice outing with talking about your death? And the young woman across from him, who was maybe in her mid-30s, started laughing. And she said, I can't get my parents to talk about um, getting their paperwork together. So it became this great conversation with people role-playing and giving tips for how they were able to start conversations either with their adult children or their parents. And that is really what the Death Cafe is about. Sharing information, talking about death in an informal environment as a way of sort of normalizing it. Because, you know, as you said earlier, Bobby, we all know that we're going to die. So, to sit around with a bunch of people and talk about topics that related to death really takes some of the intensity out and it's practice, you know? So you can practice with a group of strangers talking about death and then that makes those conversations a little bit easier with your friends and family. So it's very much like a support group. This was an interesting group. There were maybe four or five people in their 20s Um and then there were a bunch of people in their 70s and nobody in between. And the conversation came about how has social media changed the grieving process? Fascinating. You know, because the older people were talking about, you know, going to the home and bringing the casserole and everybody, you know, shows up at either the memorial service or at the burial. And the younger people were talking about how that experience was completely different for them. Um, texting about their grief, working through the grief process uh, through social media. So, you know, like I said, when I go to facilitate, I never know what's going to happen. I never know who's going to be there. I've hosted death cafes with two people, and I've hosted death cafes with 40. Um, it just all depends. So I, I'm surprised to hear, and probably because I'm in my 70s, that the younger people don't do the take the casserole. <laughs> I mean, you know, because they've seen it happen throughout their lives. And also, you know, food is just a, just such a comforting way of saying I care. That that surprises me. Well, Maybe it shouldn't, but it does. <laughs> it, you know, it was just a small sample size in one conversation. Um, but yeah. even sending a text message of condolence versus a handwritten note, like how does that appear to that surviving person, you know? Well, I have to say that it's it's often surprising to me that the way that friends and family members are informed that somebody has died is on social media rather than phone taking the time to make a phone call. Um, yeah. Yeah. That just, yes. Yeah. And, and that I see a lot in, in, the, in younger people is a way of making that announcement. But there's an awful lot of stuff on social media that maybe shouldn't be there, but 
Um, I, I, you know, it just seems no matter how you get the information, it's going to be shocking, but to read it in, in a Facebook message that could, you know, be way down, way down on your feed and maybe you don't see it. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Right. I digress, but yes. And given where we are, you know, in Northern Virginia, there have been some very interesting conversations around cultural traditions um, Mm -hmm. in terms of how, you know, different cultures, different religions do the end of life, have the mourning period, what are different um, ideas about how a body should be buried or not. And some of those conversations have been very, very interesting as well. So um, anybody have a chance to go to a death cafe, I would totally recommend it. Uh, It's very easy to find one, www.deathcafe.com and enter your zip code. And if there are any death cafes that are in your area, they, they will pop up. So this is a national This program. is international. There's actually um, 82 countries that host death cafes now. And there have been over 15,000 death cafes held. So um, as I said, this, this started off, John Underwood was, I'm not sure what this means. He was a death entrepreneur and started these in 2011. And... Lizzie Miles, who was a hospice nurse in Ohio, she had the first one in the United States in 2012. So internationally and nationally, uh, it's just kind of grown, um, which I think is fabulous because, again, the more people can talk informally about death, be exposed to different ideas about death and dying, Uh, the easier it is to have conversation about it. It's easier to define what you yourself want and to let your loved ones know what those desires are. Do you find that people sometimes come in, you know, with a bit of trepidation, not knowing quite what to expect and leave relieved? Oh, yes. Um, Yes. I didn't really know what to expect. Even... Even telling your spouse or your neighbor, yeah, I'm leaving now to go to a death cafe. I mean, even saying that sentence can lead to a conversation. Like, why would you want to do that? You know, Um, even that can lead to some conversation. And conversation is good. It is. Conversation is great. You know, the fact that you smile so beautifully when you're talking about it leads me to understand that this is a positive experience. Yes. Um, At One Death Cafe, um, and and I usually do them at the library. The Loudoun County Library has been a a wonderful host. Um, Someone was talking about a lot of loss that they had experienced. And so there were some tears and Then somehow we got on a discussion about the weirdest eulogies you've ever heard. (laughs) And we laughed so loud. The librarian came in. She's like, is is (laughs) this the death cafe? I mean, we were, I mean, tears streaming down everybody's face. So it runs the gamut of emotion too, just like death and dying does and thinking about it. Well, some of the best funerals are hilarious. <laughs> right, I mean, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Um, a friend of ours, um, he's actually set aside a certain amount of money for to be used for people to go to a, a, a local bar and celebrate his life. He doesn't want any sadness. He's got a he's got a um, list of music that he wants played to have people dancing and telling stories. Um, <laughs> Yes, he's Irish. <laughs> well, following along that years ago, um, I'm from Pittsburgh originally. And if you're from Pittsburgh, you bleed black and gold, right? So Steeler fan forever and ever. And a friend's father passed away. And his wish was to be in his easy chair, his lazy boy, with an Iron City beer. And they had a TV there. This was his funeral service. There was a TV there playing video of the Steelers Super Bowls in the 70s. And that was, and he had his Steelers shirt on and, and, and hat and the whole bit. So, yeah, I, I've um, actually seen one of the head scratchers. But that's what he wanted. And people <laughs> said, that is him. That is who he was. And, you know, that's celebrated him. Well, Mike, and right. And so, you know, one of the things with Compassion and Choices and some of the other resources is to be able to die or create your dying experience right. that reflects who you are, your values, your priorities, how you live your life, not someone else's ideas about how it should be. And we only get that right. if we have these conversations. So talk about it. Talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sharon, it's been an absolute joy uh, talking to you about this. Um, I, like Bobby, was sitting there scratching my head saying, Death Cafe. Oof. But your explanation of it um, isn't as scary. It's, it's not scary at all. Uh, but before I was, oh my, what are we going to do? How, how bad is this going to be? <laughs> but um, thank you for enlightening us. I know I learned a lot, and I usually do because I'm not the smartest guy around, so there's always room for me to learn. But uh, I'm sure our, our, our listeners got a lot out of it and maybe allay their fear of actually going to a death cafe and having that difficult, difficult conversation. So thank you. And I'm so glad that you shared that, yeah. that this is an international program. You know, when we first started talking, I thought this, this lady, Sharon, is really smart. She came up with this really wonderful thing. But it, it, it's, it's, it's even bigger <laughs> oh, than wait. you. We won't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for inviting me on. I really enjoyed our discussion. Well, thank you for being with us. So, yeah, uh, finding out that it's international and that there's actually a place where you can go to find it with uh, deathcafe.com that, uh, and plug in your zip code, you can find something like that. That's, uh, that's a big takeaway. Absolutely. And the reminder that, you know, yes. these documents that we have in place need to be changed. Um, even if everything, if things right. don't ch change drastically, review them right. regularly. All good information. You can find more information about Sharon and links to Compassion and Choices website and Facebook page on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia. 
Bobby and I would love to hear from you, answer any questions you might have, or just find out how you're doing. Please connect with us on our Roger That Facebook and Twitter. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.